support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're going to talk about poverty in a uh, recent study that came out. Uh, statistics released by the Metropolitan Policy Program revealed uh, la- recently that the, there are drastic increases in suburban poverty rates for the 100 largest metropolitan areas in the country. So this week on Noon Edition, that's what we're going to be talking about with three guests. One of them is the co-author of the, the uh, com- Confronting Suburban Poverty in America study. That's Elizabeth Kneebone. She's a fellow at the Metropolitan Policy Program of the Brookings Institution. Also, Linda Patton is with us. She's here in the studio. She is the Circles Initiative Coordinator for Indiana South Central Community Action Program. We'll hear more about the Circles Initiative today. And also, David Reingold is here. He's a professor and executive associate dean of the Indiana University School of Public and Environmental Affairs. So if you have questions or comments on this topic and the topics we're going to talk about today, please call us at 855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348. You can also join a live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. So, Elizabeth, we want to start with you. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Hope I got all that uh, title stuff correct. So um, the, uh, the the study that was just released or the the, the what, what would you call it? Would you call it a study or a white uh, it paper? Was actually, it's a book. A book. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's gotten a lot of press based on this finding that the poverty is growing faster in the suburbs than elsewhere. Can you sort of uh, give us an overview of the book? Sure. Uh, we've been finding in our research over the last several years here at the Metro program that, in fact, the, the pace of growth in the suburban poor population has been uh, picking up faster than even in our major cities across our large metropolitan areas. That's actually something that we saw beginning uh, as early as the 80s, and in each decade it's, it's picked up pace. But the 2000s were really striking for the magnitude of the increases that we saw. The suburban poor population grew by 64 percent between 2000 and 2011. And that's more than twice the rate of growth in our major cities. And at the same time, we passed a tipping point so that there are actually now more poor residents living in our suburbs than, than in cities across these major metro areas. And, and how do you determine, I mean, how, how do you define suburbs in these metro areas? We start with the official metropolitan statistical area definitions put out by uh, the Census Bureau and the Office of Management and Budget. So these are, these are you know, uh, metropolitan regions made up of counties. We identify the primary cities in these regions. Uh, For instance, in Indianapolis, it would be Indianapolis. Uh, And then the remainder of the metropolitan statistical area is considered the suburban total. Okay. And so I know in the book you've come up with a few of the big reasons why you think this shift is happening. And what are those? If you, you know, speaking broadly, think about what's causing increasing uh, poverty in the suburbs. It can be because people are moving to suburban communities who have lower incomes. Uh, It can also be longer-term residents flipping down the economic ladder after two recessions last decade and and structural changes in the economy that show, you know, many jobs paying less. Okay, we're going to – I know you've got a lot of proposals and and, uh, ways that you can implement those strategies. We'll get to that in a, a little bit, but uh, again, thanks for being with us today. We're going to take it back to the studio here with with um, our two guests here. And Linda, the Circles Initiative is a, an anti-poverty program that's been operating here for just a few years, right? It's, it's been about, here five years five now. Five years now. Yeah. And I, I refer to it as a community building model. Okay. Uh, it's getting people together mm-hmm. that ordinarily wouldn't interact. Mm-hmm. So in circles, I mean, I've heard it referred to as 
Well, I, I don't know if this is a, would sound pejorative or not, but almost like a Big Brothers Big Sisters program for families that helps get mentors uh, together with people that may need a little bit of help negotiating mm-hmm. uh, some of the the realities of life. Right. In some way, it is. Except, I would say it's co-mentoring. Uh, because the folks that live in poverty are also teaching people that really don't know anybody that lives in poverty how difficult it is and how many places you have to go and how much energy it takes. So mm-hmm. it's driven by the needs of the folks in poverty, but it's much more um, uh, reactive to to what they need and want than, mm-hmm. than a program would be. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, David Reingold, I want to ask you, uh, I, I guess, to react to – First of all, to the book and uh, what Elizabeth was talking about, did it surprise you, the, the results of this book about suburban poverty? Well, let me just say it's a pleasure to be here and um, to discuss this new study, and it's an important piece of work, and I think something that deserves uh, our attention. The, um, I think, as, as, as Elizabeth mentioned, you know, we've been seeing uh, rises in uh, suburban poverty for uh, several decades now, and, um, and I do think that she is you know, right to make the argument based on the analysis and the data that, in fact, we have sort of reached an inflection point. I guess one of the big questions is, you know, what does that mean? And um, okay. and I think uh, from my perspective, I think its, it's meaning is really driven by uh, the counterintuitive uh, – uh, uh, observation that, uh, in fact, the rise of suburban poverty has a lot to do with uh, the rise of suburbs and the predominance of suburbanization in the United States uh, over the past uh, 50 plus years. And, um, and in fact, you know, it still is the case today that, uh, you know, most, most Americans really uh, pr- want to live in a suburb and actually most do live in a suburb. And, um, uh, you know, the National Association of Realtors uh, recently reported, for example, that roughly 80 percent of Americans want to live in a single-family house. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, only 8 percent want to live in an apartment. Uh, there are about 70 percent of households live in a single-family house. Uh, um, so there's still a gap. There's still, I mean, there's still a, a chunk of the population that still wants to be in a single-family ho- house in a suburban environment, uh, and they're not. And, um, and of course, this, uh, you know, really bumps into a number of, of, of challenges for us. Um, and, and, and from my perspective, I, I guess I'd like to uh, uh, highlight the fact that, um, you know, the suburbanization of the United States uh, has, has uh, taken place after uh, uh, the sort of the basic organization of government sort of got established. So uh, we have a, a level of organization of government um, around local government and uh, uh, in some cases, in our case, township government, we've got city government, we've got county government, we've got and then state government. And that intergovernmental uh, organization really uh, came into existence prior to uh, this suburban trend. And, um, and, and one of the, I think, the big challenges that we have is that our, our sort of organization of government hasn't really changed or caught up with the, uh, the, the geographic uh, uh, reorganization of how people uh, uh, and where people live. And, uh, and certainly in Indiana, I think we, we've confronted this a lot, uh, or, and we've had a lot of discussions over, you know, how should we organize ourselves and mm-hmm. what is the appropriate level of government to address these issues. And um, anyway, so I think uh, uh, there's no question that uh, suburban poverty is, is a growing, uh, growing problem. Um, but I, I still would uh, also contend that if, if you still want to sort of find uh, the poorest places in the United States, uh, and the places where poverty is the most acute, you're uh, probably not going to head to the suburbs. That doesn't mean that you're not not necessarily going to find uh, high poverty areas. But um, uh, but I could uh, give up. I could run down a list of the of the poorest uh, places in the United States, and mm-hmm. uh, you know whether it's uh, McAllen, uh, Mission, Texas, or Brownsville, uh, Texas, or Valdosa, Georgia, or uh, or Monroe, Louisiana. I mean, these are sm- sort of medium to small towns uh, with about 100, 150,000 uh, people in them mm-hmm. uh, and, and are not necessarily uh, suburbs of major metropolitan areas. Mm-hmm. All right. Let me give the phone numbers again if you want to join our conversation about poverty, 855-0811-877-285-9348. You can also join a live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. Uh, Elizabeth, I wanted you to uh, be able to react to that. Uh, David was talking about how the maybe uh, the um, the, mo- the you'll find the most severe cases of poverty still in in some of these metropolitan areas, uh, even though a greater percentage of poverty overall is going to the suburbs. 
Uh, Dave made a couple of really great points there. Uh, one, one being that part of the challenge at the suburban level is, is how fragmented suburbs can be and how difficult it is for areas that have especially recently seen rapid rises in, in their poor population, you know, to, to build up the kind of infrastructure and supports necessary to address those issues. Because again, many of these places are quite small uh, and the, and the the challenge really stretches over quite a broad area and across these regions. So, so the governance issue and the sort of scale of governance is, is one, of the, one of the barriers and challenges to, to getting the response at the right scale, uh, I think, to some of these issues. In terms of the concentration of, of poverty, it's true that when we see our, our, our um, you know, the most uh, concentrated pockets of poverty, those tend to still be in urban communities. But something that we've seen over recent decades is they're increasingly are growing in suburban communities as well. So even though we, we do have uh, suburban poverty, which could stretch over much greater areas, we're also seeing pockets of concentrated disadvantage uh, evolve in many of these communities as well, which, which is going to bring up some of the same kinds of challenges that cities have been struggling with uh, for decades. I know in, in Bloomington, uh, we used to have several um, um, trailer parks that were here in town so people could live in mobile homes close to services. And then as um, development progressed, those uh, trailer parks started slowly disappearing, and those people then were uh, kind of left to um, move farther out into the county and, and farther away from services. And is that, a, is that the kind of trend that you're seeing in your research? Housing and the location of affordable housing definitely is an important factor in, in shaping you know, where low-income families and residents are locating within regions. And that can be, as you say, as communities develop or redevelop and housing prices may increase. And that means that families and residents are looking further out into the region for affordable options. It can also be as, you know, older suburbs, their housing stock ages, they can, uh, you know, age into affordability and, and open up opportunities elsewhere in the region that may have been unaffordable previously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to I sort of broaden, uh, take, take a 30,000-foot look, I guess, at this, because I think when people read the news stories about this, that, well, poverty is, is moving to the suburbs, I think... I think people um, – I'll speak for myself. I mean, I'm sort of wondering what poverty – you know, I have this vision of what poverty looks like, um, and I'm thinking that probably my vision is incorrect. And, and you know, I, I picture these pockets of cities where there are a whole lot of people who are congregated together, and now the image I'm, that's emerging is something quite different from that. And I, Elizabeth – well, all three of you can comment on that, but Elizabeth and Linda, I think – you know, you might want to uh, maybe Linda, you can start. I mean, what, okay. with, with you know, what's what's poverty look like mm-hmm. here in Bloomington, mm-hmm. for instance? Well, I as you said, I work for South Central Community Action Program, and that was started uh, by Lyndon Johnson during the War on Poverty. Um, and we've seen a change, especially recently since the recession, of people coming in for services. And we have services like weatherization help, housing help. Uh, energy assistance. We we do Head Start. Uh, and the folks that are coming in now don't necessarily know where to go for resources or how to do it. And they also have, um, they have a lot of shame. There's a lot of shame in poverty, period. But they particularly have a lot of shame because they were living the American dream where they worked hard, did what they were supposed to do, had the things that most people have, and then they left. So I think we're seeing a new group of folks that live in poverty. And then there are lots of folks that are kind of hidden, uh, people that we encounter every day that work at the grocery store and that work at fast food and are very, very work very hard and seem um, articulate and on top of things. And when you think about how much money they make, you know they can't be living above the poverty rate uh, level. And so they're hiding a lot, too. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it's hidden, I think, emotionally, mm-hmm. rather than those trailer parks where you can tell that poverty is there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth, David, do you uh, have a uh, sort of a, a view of what poverty looks like to sort of in 2013 to help me vision envision this? Sure. Go ahead, Elizabeth. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, just just to, from from the research and, and some of the findings in our book, you know, when you look across our major metro areas, often people will say, "How is suburban poverty different than than urban poverty?" In many ways, you know, the, these these groups are, are very similar in terms of education levels and 
terms of the, the majority of them have workers in the family, you know, they're, they're working families. Uh, uh, they, uh, you know, have, they have a similar share of these populations living in deep poverty, which I think is also uh, can come as a surprise to many people who are still trying to wrap their minds around suburban poverty. But that, you know, about 45% of people living in suburban poverty are actually living below half the poverty line. Uh, and, and so in deep poverty, which is very similar to shares that we see in urban areas. Um, but I think that's also true, what we're hearing about from, from service providers all over the country, that, that there are many people now coming in to uh, safety net providers, to service providers for the first time who've never had to look for help before and often may have waited until things have become quite critical. They've exhausted every other option they have and now have multiple needs. Uh, and, and when a safety net... In, in the suburbs, which can be quite thin and, and patchy and, and not as built up as we've seen in, in urban areas over the decades, that can raise a lot of challenges for trying to connect people to the sorts of near-term supports that can help them get on a more stable footing. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is David. I would um, try and answer that question by emphasizing just how severe the uh, poverty issue has become uh, over the past four-plus years. And, um, you know, it's it's sort of hard to talk about the face of poverty without perhaps just talking about what the face of America looks like. And, um, you know, there's not a part of the country where you're not going to uh, – well, maybe there are a few places and a few enclaves uh, and we sort of all know where they are where you're, you're sort of not going to experience a whole lot of hardship. Um, but uh, but for the most part, uh, you know, the, the rate of growth of poverty in general over the past four years and, it, and its continued rise and the amount of economic hardship that is out there – is so pervasive and and so uh, substantial that uh, you know it's uh, it I don't know, it seems odd, odd to me to talk to sort of try and uh, think about dividing up the poverty population um, in these sort of discrete um, categories of uh, urban poverty and suburban poverty rural poverty I mean they, they, there are some variations in terms of what it means to uh, experience hardship in those different geographies mm-hmm. and uh, but I, I guess for me the, the the underlying thread is is the the extent and, and uh, the growth that we've seen in in material hardship in the United States and um, and you know, it's it's at a point where we really haven't seen anything quite like this in the past uh, forty plus years, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and and unfortunately, uh, in many ways, um, while we've been trying to uh, uh, combat it, and whether it's suburban poverty or urban poverty or rural poverty or small town poverty, uh, you know, we we have not, uh, I don't think, as a country, really wrapped our our, our arms around the problem and, uh, uh, and and really tried to address what is a national crisis. Mm-hmm. David, the, the big entitlement programs came on the heels of the Great Depression, um, FDR initiatives, of course. Do you see the federal government responding in a similar fashion to this current crisis? Well, uh, you know, obviously the uh, – uh, the Recovery Act, in, you know, included a lot of uh, federal spending, uh, including a number of uh, state and local federal partnership uh, uh, programs, and uh, that I think have gone a long way towards providing some immediate relief to a number of people who are on hard times. Uh, and in some uh, minor cases, uh, some of those resources have gone to uh, places and people who perhaps you know aren't in great need. But but I think that's a, a fairly sl- a small a small number. Uh, but I think that right now we, we – I don't think we have a national anti-poverty agenda. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't hear any politicians talking about it. I don't hear uh, at least in a, in a, in a, that are in a position to really do much about it. Uh, I don't think that there seems to be uh, a national dialogue. I mean I think there are a number of people out there who are trying to create one. Uh, I use uh, alum uh, and uh, SPIA graduate Tavis Smiley obviously mm-hmm. is out there uh, pushing and, and there are others. But I don't see it uh, getting much traction, and um, uh, and and I think that uh, there the problem is so substantial that uh, you know I'm a big fan of the Circles Initiative. Uh, I was uh, you know a, a champion of it uh, here in Bloomington, and I'm glad to see that it's still going. and uh, And I think you know we need a lot of localized uh, efforts that are going to uh, try and uh, take hold. But it, at some level, you know. These are – when you look at the, the macro level, the, the problem is so substantial mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, trying to address these issues, um, it, you, know, uh, you know, sort of in a piecemeal fashion, it, you know, is a mm-hmm. little bit like trying to um, – uh, well, anyway, it's just probably not going to get you very far. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth, do you think that uh, the, the, the 
population of poverty, people experiencing poverty uh, in a more suburban setting takes them um, a little bit out of the mainstream as far as people actually seeing it. And so um, an, uh, kind of an out of sight, out of mind um, situation comes to pass. I do think that it, uh, this is a challenge that can be quite hidden, as we were talking about earlier, uh, because uh, particularly the fact that, as David was mentioning, this growing poverty, we now have record levels of, of the population living below the poverty line. And this is really something that's touching more people in places uh, than we've seen in decades. And, and, in, and it's touching more communities than than we would expect in terms of even when we say suburbs, people might think, oh, you mean inner ring or distressed places that have been struggling for longer, similar to their central cities. But really, this is something that has spread throughout regions, throughout communities, and it's happening in places where people aren't necessarily expecting it or looking for it. And you can look to places in Indiana like uh, you know, Carmel or Noblesville or Fishers or uh, a number of other suburbs that have actually seen their poor population more than double in just over a decade. Uh, but this isn't often something that is necessarily visible, and, and that can make it all that much more challenging to connect families who are struggling to the kinds of opportunities that, that can help them get on a more secure footing, whether that's you know, the immediate you know, emergency safety net services or job retraining or, or connecting them to employment opportunities that, that could help them work their way out of poverty. Uh, it raises a number of challenges uh, in these communities. Mm-hmm. We have a, a question uh, from uh, our chat. Um, one of our uh, listeners says, what kind of success do we see with programs such as Circles? And I'll let uh, Linda answer that first. And then, the other, David, you said you're a supporter. And, and Elizabeth, are you, you familiar with that concept, the Circles concept? Uh, yes. Okay, yes. sure. So, Linda, why don't you go first? Yes. Um, well, poverty is um, complex. People are complex. Mm-hmm. And Circles uh, tries to address all the areas. So we have uh, personal decisions that, that drive people to stay in poverty. We also have systemic issues. Circles thinks that people living in poverty are the experts on poverty. They're experiencing it. Um, they're reacting to it emotionally, so they don't have a lot of time to analyze it because they're dealing with food, clothing, shelter, basic survival things. So they're not able to put together the time and energy to explain and advocate for themselves. So by being partnered with people that are more uh, stable in the community, not only do they learn new skills and and um, and there's a lot to be said for having friends in high places, you know. Um, they also are able to translate their story to the greater community and to change some systemic issues. And that's what we hope for. Um, and Circles is now in 70 communities around the United States, and we're in Canada, too. So we're trying in a lot of places, a lot of different ways. Um, the successes we have locally, we're deep, not wide. Uh, most people we work with live in generational poverty, meaning their parents, their grandparents. That causes some particular issues even toward brain development and emotional capabilities. Uh, so it's going to take a lot of effort and work. And these are very motivated people, work very hard. And just in the five years we've been doing it, we've seen people um, – Several people graduate from college, get their degrees, either their associates or their um, one person got their teaching certificate. Um, We've seen people uh, move towards stable housing, safe and stable housing. Um, We've seen people uh, get counseling and support and and be trained and apply and receive new jobs that uh, earn more money. And what we've really seen is... um, the increase, in, the decrease in shame and the increase of, you know what, I'm the person that lives in poverty and here's my life story. I'm going to share that with you and then you can't have your stereotypes of poverty anymore because I'm really working hard. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how to do this any better, but I'm willing to try other things. So that's mm-hmm. been very helpful, too. So we want to we want to decrease use on um, public aid um, programs and increase self-reliability. And that's what people enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. And it seems like inner reliability as, yes, as well. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Creating community. And yeah. David, you said you're a fan. Can you... Yeah, I, I'm, I am a fan. I, I still think that the verdict is, 
out in terms of you know how far uh, circles can go. And I think there's a lot of uh, variability across the, a number of sites uh, around the country that are trying to implement it. But but I am a fan uh, for a variety of reasons. I, you know, circles uh, relies on uh, individual uh, private volunteers uh, sort of working mm-hmm. to help. Uh, 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 other citizens and other community members, and um, you know, when you look at the um, the, the scale of, of the poverty problem in the United States, it's sort of inconceivable to me, given it's uh, uh, that that uh, that government alone is going to be the solution. I mean, you're going to have to find ways to uh, empower um, or revitalize uh, civil society. Uh, where individual citizens see it as a, uh, an obligation to be involved in, in helping each other. And there is a lot of that that has been a part of the American tradition and continues to be a part of it. But I think a big question is how do you sort of continue to push that and get even more people f- who feel an obligation uh, to be engaged in helping others in, in, a, in a very personalized, individualized uh, way and in a very decentralized way because, um, you know, America is a, is a complex uh, society. It's a place where the idea that uh, we're going to have uh, somebody who's sitting at the control panel, uh, uh, you know, working their magic to uh, help uh, everybody in this big, uh, vast uh, uh, country is, is, I think, unrealistic. So I think that they're – and, and in fact, it, it harkens back um, to, uh, to uh, uh, an initiative. Actually, it was Bismarck in Germany. Uh, it was called the Elberfeld system, uh, which was an, uh, his, one of his initial anti-poverty uh, um, uh, efforts uh, under the 1870 German poor law. And, and, and while there's a lot to, uh, that we can criticize Bismarck for, I think he was, he was a real innovator in terms of trying to think about realistic and practical and potentially successful ways of trying to help people who are <coughs> in, in need. Uh, there is a long, long list of anti-poverty uh, initiatives, uh-huh. um, and uh, you know, and, and that have been tried before, that are currently being tried, uh, whether it's in the private sector or the public sector, whether it's happening at a local level or a national level, whether it's happening in the United States or outside the United States, and uh, and I think that's that's a good thing. I think we're in sort of uh, what it has been and, and is continues to be sort of a golden period of um, of experimentation, uh, and uh, and I think through that we are learning a little bit about where the marginal benefits are for certain kinds of interventions. But I think the idea that there's sort of a an elixir and a cure and a, mm-hmm. sort of a one policy uh, solution to this, mm-hmm. I think is uh, is probably naive. Elizabeth, you have a, a quick reaction to the question about circles before we take a short break. Sure. No, I, I mean, I, I completely agree that there's, there's not going to be a cookie-cutter solution for this because this is such a diverse array of communities and places dealing with these challenges. And the idea that you can galvanize uh, community interaction, which builds awareness, it updates perceptions about who is struggling with these issues and, and where the struggle is happening, uh, is really important. And it is about, it's about being able to leverage not just public funds, but bringing that together with nonprofit and, and private sector investment to make things to make interventions that work in more than one place and for it, and, and address more than one issue. And exactly as the circles model uh, uh, describes, there's a whole range of policy issues that intersect with poverty that have to be part of the solution and the conversation as you try and set people uh, uh, on, a, on a, at a better path. All right. <clears throat> Excuse me. You're listening to Noon Edition. We're going to have to take a short break. We've got a lot of different avenues to travel down here in the second half of our program. Um, but uh, please stick with us. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. You can take WFIU with you by downloading our podcasts directly to your PC, Mac, or MP3 player. Programs such as Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, and short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Pick them up at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? The WFIU news team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Catch the Friday feature just after 8.30 during Morning Edition, just before Noon Edition, and at 5.45 during All Things Considered. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. 
Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of The Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're talking about uh, poverty and the uh, a, a book about poverty that uh, one of our guests, Elizabeth Kneebone, from the Metropolitan Policy Program of the Brookings Institution has recently co-authored. Um, our other guests are Linda Patton, from the Circles Initiative Coordinator for the Indiana South Central Community Action Program, and also David Rheingold, Professor and Executive Associate Dean of the Indiana University School of Public and Environmental Affairs. If you want to join us, please call us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You can also join a live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. We have had a caller, uh, Banila, is that how you pronounce your name? Banila. Okay, now she's been very patient, so please go ahead. Yeah, um, I have a question. I have several questions, actually. One of them is, um, how do you define poverty? So what is poverty? The other question is, what do these people have access or do not have access to? And also, for example, I'm, well, I'm a foreigner, so, for example, poverty in my country, people could not have sewages, for example, or water. Um, do these people have like ed- education access? And someone mentioned that they had mental problems. Is this because of the food quality that is not good? Um, yeah, so access and what do they have, what do they lack, health, etc. Okay. Well, thank you for the question. Uh, Linda, you want to start? I would like that. Um, the Circles Initiative kind of defines poverty not just as the uh, extent to which you do without finances, but also other resources. So it's a combination of things. I think we've all known people that have had a lot of money and no sense. Uh, So it's not just about money. Um, But it it is what were the role models in your family? What opportunity did you have for education? Uh, What mental resources did you have? And I certainly didn't mean to imply that people that live in poverty are mentally ill, just that it's very stressful emotionally. Uh, And your social and emotional resources. So we work on all of those areas uh, because if you just pull someone out of a situation, like if you popped me into a different country and said you need to work this job in this country, I wouldn't know what to do because I wouldn't have the tools of the country. I wouldn't understand what was expected of me because my experiences are different. So if I'm raised in poverty, I learn a lot of concrete ways to survive day to day. And people in poverty are really strong, concrete thinkers. Uh, it amazes me all the time, after crisis after crisis after crisis, that people deal with and yet have wonderful children and strong marriages and work hard and uh, participate in things in their community. But if that keeps happening, then all you have experience doing is responding to crisis, not planning ahead. So we work with people to stabilize them, not just financially, but in other ways, so that then they can plan ahead and get ahead. So our definition of poverty is pretty broad. And it's a combination of, of all of those. It's, it's just uh, some people may have finances are their main issue. Some people, it may be that the family that they grew up in was really dysfunctional and didn't help them learn the tools they needed to succeed. Mm-hmm. All right, Elizabeth, how, how about this question about, uh, I guess, levels of poverty? It sounds like Benilia has uh, the poverty in her country is perhaps different from poverty here. So in our work, we typically use the the federal uh, poverty threshold uh, for defining um, the poverty line. And in in 2013, that's roughly $23,500 for a family of four. Uh, so it, you know there are, there are a lot of limitations with this measure because it's it's a gross income measure. It doesn't take into account changes in the cost of living. It's the same line that applies to San Francisco as Louisville as New York. It's, it's a consistent uh, line across the country. Uh, and, it, and it doesn't take into account things like taxes or um, uh, differences in cost of living or even benefits that you get that, that may actually help you uh, get by, like, like uh, earned income tax credits, for instance, or, or housing subsidies. But it is a consistent line that we can use and, 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 and look back decades to measure how these trends have changed in uh, communities and neighborhoods over time. Okay. Do you have another question? 
No, I think that's it. Okay. Thank I you. I hope we answered your question. Thanks a lot. The phone number, again, 855-0811-877-285-9348. You can also join a live chat, wfiu.org slash noon edition. So, Elizabeth, it's uh, we've established, okay, that there is a shift of uh, the majority of people in poverty are no longer in um, urban areas but are uh, in metropolitan. Uh, suburban. Uh, suburb- I did that exactly backward. <laughs> it's Friday. Uh, at any rate, <laughs> um, so w- what do you recommend? I mean, does your I understand your book does make some recommendations about how to approach this issue. That's right. I, I mean, in, in the first case, we have been talking about policies that since the war on poverty that have been built up over the years. And, you know, currently the federal government spends $82 billion to, to address poverty in place. So you know, the neighborhood and community-based programs uh, to address uh, poverty. But that money is fragmented across more than 80 programs and 10 different agencies. And a lot of these programs were developed to address uh, distressed inner-city neighborhood poverty. Uh, and while that's still a critical need, a lot of these programs don't adapt easily or map easily onto the landscape of suburban poverty and the needs of suburban communities. So we've been, in our research, we've been able to, to spend some time in regions across the country and have found some really promising models uh, that are addressing these issues on a better scale. Because uh, again, it's not that it's not that it needs in cities have gone away. We still see high poverty rates and entrenched poverty in urban areas. So it's more about taking the limited resources we have and using them more effectively, so that they can create better opportunities for city and suburban residents. And that means you know working at a better scale, uh, not just suburb by suburb or city by city, but really thinking about these things regionally, working across jurisdictions, and as we said before, working across policy silos, because so many things intersect with poverty and creating access to opportunity. And and there are a lot of smart organizations and, and strategies that we see developing in regions across the country that could really point the way towards the types of reforms and, and uh, realignment of funding that would really help stretch resources further. Now, I, I looked at your website today. It uh, looks like the proposal, one of the main proposals is, is that the federal government should create a metropolitan opportunity challenge. And it was likened to the uh, race to the top program. Could you explain this a little bit? Sure. That's right. I mean, you know, in the book, we also point to, like, the the kinds of things that I was just talking about. Mm -hmm. There are short-term things that could happen, you know, tomorrow that help pave the way for for these sorts of more scaled, collaborative, and strategically funded solutions. But to really change the way that we address uh, poverty within metropolitan areas, we're suggesting this Metropolitan Opportunity Challenge which would be, you know, just by repurposing a small portion, 5% of that $82 billion we already spend on place-based programs, you could create a pool of funds, $4 billion, which is similar to what Race to the Top initially started as, and make it a competitive funding stream so that states and metros could come to the table and apply for these funds uh, and use them in a way that would help realign their systems, you know, cut through some of the red tape and, and improve the way monies flow within regions, uh, to, to promote these kinds of solutions that could uh, improve access to opportunity, be that uh, improved transit connections to where jobs are or affordable housing or better education options within communities uh, to, to train people for better job opportunities in the future. So they could use this money flexibly at a regional level uh, to measure, you know, increase access to opportunity, but in measurable outcome-driven ways. Now, as I uh, read through this this stuff this morning, it it looks as if uh, this would not be limited to government. It would, did I read that incorrectly or correctly? Well, the idea is that you know, with this four billion dollars from the federal government, that creates a real incentive for states to start thinking differently and for regions to start reframing the way they think about addressing poverty in place across city and suburbs. But the expectation would also be that that money would be used to leverage private funds because government alone can't can't do this, can't address, as David was saying before, there's not enough uh, you know, money in that pool to, to address the need everywhere that it exists. So it's about using that money in a way that leverages private investment and can help align other larger and different funding streams to flow in complementary ways. So are faith-based initiatives uh, eligible for, to receive funds in your plan? 
Uh, if they were a registered nonprofit working with, uh, you know, in partnership with, because the idea is that this should be a collaborative model that brings together, uh, you know, government agencies and elected officials with nonprofits and other, um, you know, capacity in the community, including the faith-based community. So something like a, a Salvation Army, something like Sorry? Salvation Army that is really faith-based but is also a, a 501c3 not-for-profit organization, that would that would work for you. Yeah, they, they, they could be a part of this uh, plan as right. well. Okay, just want to understand. Thanks. Mm-hmm. So, and also circles, I would, I would assume, mm-hmm. circles initiative. Absolutely. Think, yeah. Sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so reaction can from you, David? Can I jump in? Yeah. Um, and uh, Elizabeth, maybe you could sort of react. It's mm-hmm. a little bit of a comment and maybe a question at, at the same time. Uh, you know, we've had a lot of experience in the past with trying to induce uh, local levels of government uh, to reorganize, to rethink how they approach uh, a number of the policy issues. And I mean, you mentioned education, race at the top. You know, uh, in the 1960s, uh, we had uh, Johnson's Model Cities program, which essentially, you know, put out a bunch of money and asked uh, cities to partner. In this case, it was with uh, nonprofit organizations and other private institutions to sort of work together on a number of issues facing particular cities. And uh, in that particular case, and I think it's somewhat true, although we still, I think the verdict is still out uh, to a certain degree with race, uh, race to the top, uh, that uh, money would flow into these places. And, um, and even though there were these grand plans for Co- coordination and and cooperation across a variety of uh, institutional divides. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, the, the the cities got the money and they sort of did what they wanted with it, uh, and and uh, not not a whole lot changed. And um, in this particular case, you're sort of asking uh, uh, local units of government to potentially uh, sort of shift and become more regional levels of government. And, and in Indiana, for example, we've seen a number of local government proposals to uh, – we have something called township trustees here, which uh, actually are engaged in poor support uh, to eliminate uh, township trustees, to uh, work on uh, sort of this antiquated or what uh, some people would argue is an antiquated uh, organization of local government around counties, trustees, uh, and township trustees and, and cities. And, um, and of course, you know, uh, there's a, there are a lot of entrenched interests uh, at, at play. It's very hard to go to a mayor or to a county executive and say, you know, how about submitting a proposal that uh, might eventually mean the end of your role uh, as we currently know it. And mo- most folks who are in political life are not going to uh, uh, follow that path. Uh, uh, there are only a few who are willing to uh, make those sacrifices. So I guess I'm sort of wondering, how do you avoid in this uh, plan, how do you avoid giving money to uh, to uh, various uh, consortiums uh, who say that they're going to essentially work uh, across these uh, uh, boundaries, uh, uh, but simply more or less doing what they were going to do anyway? Right. And, uh, you know, I think... We we have a lot of, as I said, there are a lot of great models to look at for how this is working, which don't in fact require, it's not necessarily adding another layer of of governance on top of all of this, like creating a new regional entity uh, that's an incorporated entity that, that works, you know, that, that wasn't there before, but we're adding another layer of red tape in this, in this situation. It's more about finding... Um, you know, and it, it's going to look different in different regions. In Chicago, in the in the suburbs, there are already municipalities that are coming together, trying to work collectively on issues like the foreclosure crisis or planning for transit-oriented development and trying to think more regionally. And they actually are often, you know, face a lot of barriers or penalties in trying to use federal funds that way. I mean, and it, our current system often gets in the way and frustrates uh, the efforts to, to think more regionally and work more uh, you know, across silos and across jurisdictions. So that's the intent of this plan is to more empower those models that are already working and provide incentives for other regions to think along those lines. But part of it has to be building capacity, because this is some of the issue. We can talk about realigning funding and how we want to direct government and philanthropic and private investment towards struggling communities that don't have the same capacity that's built up in urban areas over time. But if we don't actually build the capacity there, money will flow where it always has, because that's where it can actually be deployed and absorbed. So part of this is actually building in into uh, these plans and applications would be, here's how we intend to build capacity and deploy resources, and this is tied to measurable outcomes. 
So you can unlock additional funding if you can prove that you've met benchmarks along the way. You know, so that there really are, um, there are there's the carrot and the stick, if you will, of, of trying to, to not just create a plan and talk about how it's going to be implemented in a way that really does benefit more communities and more residents, but actually measurable benchmarks that, that would have um, additional, uh, additional funding uh, tied to them that, that you would lose out on if you couldn't actually demonstrate uh, the ability to complete those goals. Okay. David, any uh, reaction? Yeah, I, I guess I'm, you know, it'd be, it'd be curious. I'd be curious. It's sort of a, an experiment to know what kind of municipalities would actually, and regions would actually step forward and, and, and uh, for this sort of initiative and, and what kind of um, flexibility they, and, and reform they would be willing to entertain. I mean, I think there's a, an interesting example going on in Chicago. Uh, it's called the Civic Alliance. It's uh, one of Rahm Emanuel's is the mayor of Chicago's uh, initiatives to try and figure out how to get the city of Chicago to work more effectively, for example, with Cook County government. Uh, and there's a lot, uh, and it directly affects a lot of low-income people in the suburbs uh, as well as in the city of Chicago in terms of health care, uh, which is provided by the county, is, and there's all sorts of uh, battles and, and struggles over getting coordination around transportation services and those sorts of things. And you know, so they, the, so so there are some examples out there, and he set up this nonprofit organization. It's called the Civic Alliance, and, and he's sort of going out and asking philanthropic organizations and corporations and others who have an interest in seeing uh, both the city and the county in Chicago actually do a better job at, at kind of co-producing services uh, and opportunities for low-income people. Um, I, you know, at the end of the day, my sense is that those efforts will only sort of help at, at the margins and, and at the periphery, um, you know, the, the, and, and, and to a certain extent, um, you know, in order for us to sort of uh, address the regional questions, and I think they are legitimate and they are real questions, we've got to come to grips with this issue that our system, our, our organization of government was established in a time period which is just uh, a, different, a different period of history. Uh, and, um, and and today, uh, you know, if we were to sit down and actually design the various levels of government, we probably would have a very different approach. Um, but uh, but you know, how we get from here to there, I think, is you know, an enormous challenge. And, and I don't think that monetary – I guess my view, my sense is, my hunch is, is that monetary incentives for local government are not going to uh, uh, be powerful enough. To get them to reconsider the uh, their their uh, level of organization um, and the way in which we govern ourselves. I mean, I, I, if I if I can just respond sure. quickly to that, I think perhaps I'm a little a little more optimistic than that. In just that we are seeing, particularly after the recession and the budget crisis facing so many local organizations, so many local municipalities, we have seen um, movement in the Chicago suburbs. For instance, the state of Ohio with its local government innovation fund, which provided the resources for local municipalities to think. About about shared service delivery, to think about uh, or, or pursue merger and consolidation. And that, that was a competitive you know, funding stream that a lot of, it, that showed, that got a lot of applications from local governments realizing that they can't deal with all of these challenges on their own. So I do think that there is an opportunity uh, and, that, and that sometimes it is, it is important just to even start with that cash incentive because they are so resource strapped at the local level that to even think differently requires resources and investment in the first place to give them the capacity and the space to, to pursue a different model. Linda, you had a comment? Well, and then I'm hoping that we'll have, uh, because I believe in benchmarks and I believe in measurement, but uh, expecting a lot of change in the two years that you get your grant for. Uh, it, and something that caused generations, it takes generations to get all the problems, um, is not very realistic to me. Uh, there are many causes, so we need many solutions. But thinking that I'm going to get this money and solve it in two years, and then if I don't, if I don't show the measurable, then I'm going to uh, get that taken away instead of changing it a little and building on it and growing it a little bit. I think uh, poverty is being seen more and more as a public health issue, and I appreciate that. That brings some more people into the um, conversation that weren't before. And there's a lot of conversation and research about uh, trauma and poverty and that when people have lived in poverty for generations, the stress of it can cause traumatic reactions and, and health issues that we'll need to deal with on a more of a two-generation model, really, that we need to work with our kids, too, the children of the folks that live in poverty. And we're trying to do that with circles, too. 
Thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, David, it sounds like you're possibly, I may be mishearing it, but possibly more uh, optimistic that that uh, nonprofits in the private sector might be willing to embrace this type of uh, program than government. Well, that's, I guess, yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't know. My, my professional experience has been that, um, you know, particularly in, in, in the private sector, uh, you know, uh, go- governments, if you show up at, at the door of a corporation and you say, you know, I'm with the government and, uh, you know, we're, we're here to help you, you're not you're just not going to get anywhere. Um, and uh, but I think pri- private institutions and private citizens, you know, are have a, a different opportunity and, um, and and can really, I think, add enormous uh, uh, value and 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 potentially uh, if it if we can get into sort of a, a mass movement. Uh, I think you could actually see, uh, you know, a real impact. Now, that's a little pie in the sky thinking, right? I mean, you know, we, we obviously, uh, you know, how do you how do you change social norms? How do you change uh, sort of conventions of day to day behavior? I mean, these are difficult issues, and um, and 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 they come uh, usually from parts of our our lives um, that, uh, that that have very little to do with government. They usually come from our faith. And they come from our uh, devotion to our communities and our, our connections to other people and, uh, and, and those life experiences. So, you know, and I, it's always been hard for me to understand sort of how government shapes those things, I think, um, in, in a positive way. I mean, and I don't know whether we really actually have the recipe for how governments actually do um, shape those, the, the, that kind of individualized uh, orientation. Um, Elizabeth, can you respond in, a, in uh, about a minute? I want to add that you, you say clearly – it says clearly in here that the Metropolitan Opportunity Challenge would be agnostic about what type of entity carries out the strategy in any given state. So you're, you're basically opening up to nonprofits or government agencies or MPOs or consortium uh, involving them. We have about one minute to go. Yep. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, the idea is that the government government does invest a significant amount of money in these types of programs, so it's making sure those systems work better and more flexibly with with what we often call the regional quarterbacks, the nonprofits, the consortia on the ground who who already in many regions are figuring out the smart and effective ways to to blend resources, you know, public and private, and and work across regions, like understanding the shifting need within their regions. So it is, it's definitely, you know, the, the nonprofit is a, sector is key, the community engagement is key, but we also need to get our government systems aligned, uh, which can happen through this challenge, but it can happen in very... Um, very discreet and short-term steps that that even at least in the near term would pave the way for smart and 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 more effective organizations who are really who are who are fighting this fight every day on the ground and doing really good work and trying to get families and communities uh, you know into a healthier and more thriving place. Mm-hmm. All right, thank you very much. We are out of time. I want to thank Elizabeth Nebone for being here. Um, and that's it's been great to have you on the program as well as David Reingold and Linda Patton who didn't thank have you. to travel. Uh, they're here in <laughs> Bloomington. Um, and I want to thank uh, Mary Catherine, of course. Thank you, Mary Catherine. And producers Gretchen Frazee and Emily Wright. Joe Wren was sitting in for Gretchen today. And engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.